Good morning, everyone. I am Stephen Abrams, and I'm here this morning with my colleague Perry Willett from the California Digital Library. And we're going to be talking about some new initiatives that we are putting into place for the uh, long-term preservation and curation of digital assets. Uh, the California Digital Library is a unit of the um, Office of the President uh, that was organized uh, about 15 years ago to provide centralized technology services to the library systems of all 10 UC campuses. Uh, at first glance, um, our topic may seem to be a little bit out of place uh, at this year's uh, conference with its, with its uh, direct emphasis on security. But what we hope to convince you through our talk is, in fact, that uh, preservation uh, is an aspect of security. Um, it's a different kind of security than perhaps you're used to thinking about, but it's the security of knowing that the managed digital assets of the university will remain um, viable and useful uh, over time so that they will be uh, remain available for use by future scholars. <clears throat> so um, I think the uh, other conference sessions um, are doing a, an admirable job of discussing the traditional uh, threats to security and uh, means of combating them. And I'm sure uh, we are all familiar with um, uh, these types of, um, uh, of failures or uh, attacks. Um, but I think for the most part, we can consider these types of threats to be threats of the moment. They're, they're things that are, that are happening now. Um, machinery breaks, software goes awry, um, attacks are made. These are all things that are essentially happening in the present. Um, we in the library um, have a slightly different point of view in that we um, explicitly bring in the element of time into all of our um, analysis, our security analyses. Uh, and when we're considering things over archival time spans, many, many decades, centuries even, um, there are a number of other factors that we think it's very important to consider. Um, things such as uh, legal encumbrances, um, um, external dependencies, are, are your systems dependent on, on other things, public key infrastructure, things of that sort. What happens if those external dependencies go away? How can your systems survive? Um, various types of obsolescence, media obsolescence, I think we're all familiar with that. Uh, discs have a limited lifespan, tapes have a limited lifespan. Um, but there's also format obsolescence. Uh, the digital assets that we're dealing with are encoded in digital form in, in various types of formats, and formats come in and out of style, uh, and they are supported to greater and lesser degrees by, um, by software. Uh, again, over um, long periods of time, you have to uh, be concerned about staff competencies. Um, does, does your staff re retain the skills that they need in order to uh, provide for the care and feeding of, of the systems on which we're all depending? Um, there's also questions of institutional commitment and financial stability. Um, everything that we all do uh, costs money, a lot of money, uh, and especially in these, in these hard economic times, um, uh, budgets are being cut. And again, what kind of impact does that have uh, on, on our systems and uh, more particularly on the content that um, we've been charged with um, uh, stewarding? And then finally, um, there's this notion of changing user expectations, um, which again is something that's, that's not often thought about, but it can have an impact on the usability uh, of, of our data. 
Um, I recall back when, when I was an undergraduate in college that if you walked into a library, the first thing you saw were, were all the microfilm readers. They were, they were right there when you walked in. Uh, over time, they migrated to the back of the first floor and then they got pushed down into the basement and now they're in the sub-basement if they're there at all. Um, today's undergraduates, I suspect, don't even know what a microfilm reader is. Um, all that information encoded on microfilm, uh, it's, it's, it's at risk from changing user expectations. If, if people are not prepared to go and use it, um, then it's as if that, that information is no, is no longer there. So we take uh, a very expansive view uh, about security, uh, and I think it, it can be defined in this way. It's, it's the type of risks that we're trying to identify and ameliorate is really anything um, that has a tendency to interfere with the usability of, digi of managed digital assets uh, both now and into the indefinite future. Um, we as librarians spend a lot of time pondering the future. Um, we have uh, a very long time horizon. Uh, by way of example, the graph's a little bit difficult to see, but there are about 28 million items, uh, mostly books, but also journals, um, that are um, cataloged in the UC-wide uh, Union Library Catalog, Melville. Uh, of that, um, did a search the other day, over 11,000 of those are over 500 years old. Um, printed books, um, but because the information content of those books is encoded in analog form, print on paper, um, Leaving aside language issues, uh, my Latin's not very good, so I can't, <laughs> can't do anything with it, but you could take one of those books off the shelf. Uh, we might ask you to put on gloves and things like that, but it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly usable after, after 500 years. Uh, and of course, if we consider um, collections in our museums, there are artifacts that are many, many thousands of years old. Um, and again, perfectly, perfectly usable uh, today. Well, what happens if we try to project forward 500 years from now? What what will our, our future colleagues be able to do with the digital assets that we're creating today? Um, are they still going to be useful? And that's, um, in fact, that's the task that, that we are trying to grapple with. So with all of that in mind, um, let me just give you an overview of how the talk will go. Um, we're going to start off talking about some, some definitions of digital preservation and digital curation. Uh, and then I'll, I will um, go into some detail on uh, a new approach that we're taking at the CDL to providing um, repository services. Uh, then I will turn things over to Perry, who will talk to, to you about a new initiative that we are, are offering in terms of harvesting and preserving uh, web-published material. Uh, and then we'll give a, um, a survey of a number of interesting content collaborations that we're engaged with with various campus partners. And then finally, we'll talk about how, how to build up uh, trust relationships between content owners uh, and the CDL as a content um, preservation service provider. And then finally, we'll conclude and uh, be able to address any questions that you might have. So the title of, of our talk um, has this word preservation in it, but um, we'd actually like to um, uh, switch our terms and speak about curation, which we, we consider to be um, a slightly more expansive uh, term. Uh, and briefly, uh, curation is a set of activities that is designed to um, maintain and add value to a body of trusted digital content over time. Um, so as you can see from that definition, it really encompasses both preservation and access. 
um, we're, we're often, traditionally, we've always uh, seemed to consider those things as disparate activities, but in fact, we think that you really can't do one without the other. Um, preservation is really a, a way of ensuring access over time, uh, and access, of course, depends upon preservation up to a point in time. Um, because of that, because of that, uh, that, that interrelationship, um, we feel that curation it needs to be an integrated business process. It, it is not solely a, a something that has a technological solution. You can't just go out and buy a fancy magic box or a magic piece of software that's going to do everything for you. Um, you need the combination of certainly a robust technical infrastructure, but it's absolutely crucial that there is uh, human competencies, uh, human analysis, and human decision making uh, uh, in there as well. Also, because um, preservation is, in essence, it's, it's an ongoing activity, uh, and to some, some extent, you, you never know that preservation, um, that you've achieved preservation. You, you, you only actually know when, when you fail to preserve something, because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, preservation really needs to be a programmatic activity. It, it cannot really be funded on a, on a project basis, because then you're faced with the question of what happens at the end of the project. You just, you just can't turn things off. Uh, preservation tends to be a very proactive activity, not reactive. Um, so in that sense, um, it, it really needs to be programmatic. Uh, in recent years, we have been shifting our focus a bit. Um, we used to worry a lot about systems, and we were trying to build, in fact, that magic system that was going to do everything for us. Uh, and we now think that that's uh, sort of a fool's errand. Uh, and what we really should be concerned about are services. Services obviously are going to get implemented in terms of systems, but the systems themselves are somewhat ephemeral. They're going to come, they're going to go um, as technology changes, as our understanding changes. Um, but what we're really trying to do is make sure that, that we're able to continue um, uh, the, the various services that we want. Um, and then somewhat on that same vein, we're, we've also changed our focus from the repository as, as a system or as a place uh, where preservation happens. Uh, and we're really trying to talk about um, what do we do to ensure long-lived content? Uh, and we're no longer really interested in, in long-lived systems. So let me go on and talk a little bit about how we are trying to um, bundle up our repository services. Uh, and because uh, I am actually not a librarian by training, I'm an art historian, I, I'm going to start with a picture. Uh, in this case, a wonderful painting by, by Paul Gauguin, Du Benonu, Quesonnu, Uvalonu. In my shaky French, uh, where are we from? What are we? Where are we going? Uh, uh, why do I bring this up? Well, with a little bit of sleight of hand, uh, we'll recast these existential questions in this form. Where, where's our stuff from? What is it? And what are we going to do with it? These are really the, the, the three fundamental questions that we grapple with uh, in the library in, in managing data. Uh, and this, this sort of threefold organization works at a couple of different levels. Uh, in terms of the various agencies involved, uh, we have producers, um, managers of the repository, and consumers of data. Within the repository, there are different types of functional phases, the ingest of new material, uh, the management and archival storage of that material, uh, and then um, providing access as well as preservation planning for that material. And we can even explode out the data management section a little bit in terms of the types of information that we need to deal with, provenance, again, where, where, where does this thing come from? What's the chain of custody 
um, that was in place until we, we received it. Characterization, which is um, what are the significant uh, properties or significant characteristics of the data that we need to preserve over time. Uh, and what we in, in the preservation community call view paths. What is the, what is the, uh, the technological process that we need to put into place in order to properly render things so that um, the, the human consumers are able to use them. <clears throat> All of the work that we have, uh, are now doing um, in regard to um, preservation services uh, is, is trying to react to a very complex information landscape. Uh, and I think all of these um, things are going to be familiar to you from, from your own campus experiences. Uh, we are dealing with an ever-increasing uh, diversity in the number, the size, and the type of content, uh, and, and also, uh, and critically, in, in the various types of uses um, of the content, the ways in which people are using often reusing, often in very creative ways, in ways not thought of by the original content um, uh, creator. Uh, we need, so we need to be able to uh, be able to respond to that. Um, we are also being asked increasingly to manage content that are, is arising in non-library contexts. Um, so we are actually uh, engaging with faculty members, with research groups um, on, on your campuses. Uh, and that, of course, whenever you're dealing with a, with a across communities, um, th that, that's always a difficult process to try to manage. And then finally, all of this is happening uh, against a constant and inevitable technological change. Um, it's because of this uh, notion of technological change that, again, we, we have really um, rethought the way in which we, we conceptualize um, the notion of the repository. Um, we are currently operating um, a repository system at CDL. Um, we are, we're managing about uh, eight and a half terabytes of material, um, about two and a half million digital assets. Uh, it's a system that has evolved over the last uh, seven or eight years. Uh, it's a very large, it's, it's really a big monolithic repository system. Um, and we've come to realize that the, in, in large part because it is a monolithic thing, it is uh, very complex and it is a bit too cumbersome to be responsive to the types of changes that we're, we're, we're seeing all the time. And at the same time, it's a bit too simplistic to offer the full set of function that we want to have. So we're very much interested in trying um, a different approach to doing this. Uh, and the fundamental idea is that we are trying to break up that monolith. We want to devolve repository function into a set of independent but uh, interoperable services. Uh, the idea being that each one of these services is small and self-contained, therefore it's, they're more easily uh, developed, uh, more easily uh, maintained. Uh, and because the, the level of commitment and investment in any one of these things is much lower, uh, it's also easier to replace. Uh, it's always hard when you spend a lot of time and money building up a big whole system. Uh, there's a lot of inertia there. Um, you, 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 you can't just... Uh, uh, let it go often. So um, we're hopeful that this this way of having a set of uh, services or microservices, as we're calling them, um, will allow us to be much more flexible. Um, we also feel that at the same time, it'll be possible to provide complex function through the combination of these atomistic services in, in useful strategic combinations. 
of course we want to developing these applications we're doing all this sort of standard stuff that that you would do for any type of an app application we want to be able to support interaction through at a couple of different layers both in terms of procedural api's with various language bindings as command line applications and as web interfaces and again because these things are individual services are small and self-contained we no longer are it's it will no longer be necessary to force the content to come to a central location in order to be managed we at the cdl will be deploying these things and we will be offering those types of services for people but at the same time we're very hopeful that these services will be able to be deployed out in the field as it were you know in laboratories on scholars desktops and and that content will be able to be managed in situ where 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 it makes most sense and then finally sort of a a process oriented imperative is as we are designing these new services it's our intention to try to defer implementation decisions until the last moment in other words we 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 don't want to come into this process with particular technology or particular designs in mind we want those designs and technology choices to emerge once we have our needs and our desired outcomes fully articulated and the way in which we're doing this is by first trying to identify in terms of the digital content that we're going to manage what what are what we're calling values what are the what are the preservable values of the content and then once we have those values in mind we can devise interesting strategies that will have a tendency to promote those values and then all of this still happening at a very abstract level but again we can then embody those strategies in terms of services and then finally and turn them into into systems that provide those services so I will sort of go through this list a little bit quickly some of the more important values certainly content needs identity until you can sort of give a name to something you you can't even you can't even talk about it it doesn't have a name how do you distinguish one set of bits from from all the other bits out in the world so identity is very important viability is the ability to recover a set of bits from its storage medium fixity is the value that says are in fact these the bits are these bits unchanged from their accepted state authenticity is the value that says is are the sets of bits what they purport to be and 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 so on I won't won't read all this to you but again there are varieties of strategies that immediately sort of suggest themselves to deal with that so for identity we need some sort of persistent naming scheme with with actionable resolution for viability as in many of other these things redundancy is is one of the key strategies as well as technological heterogeneity media refresh and things of that sort so these are the values that we've identified in terms of the content that we're trying to deal with we can also do a similar exercise and say what are the what are the values that apply to the services that are based on top of this content and again I think most of these things will make sense to you things such as availability responsivity security interoperability extensibility trustworthiness and sustainability so all of these things are values that we need to keep in mind as we are designing our services 
Uh, and in fact, this is, leads us to um, this set of, uh, our initial set of 12 services that um, fall somewhat naturally into these, these four um, hierarchical layers. So starting at the bottom, we have uh, what we're calling a replication layer that is primarily concerned with uh, maintaining um, state information. Uh, do we, are we actually managing sets of bits in the appropriate configuration? Um, so things such as identity, um, storage, fixity, and, and actual replication, replicating, replicating bits to, to multiple locations um, all fits into that layer. Um, the interesting thing here is that all of these services can operate on bits without having any knowledge of what those bits um, represent. Uh, that represent, uh, notion of representation or that kind of semantic interpretation of bits happens at this next layer up, um, this interpretive layer, which is dealing with uh, main maintenance of the context or, or again, what is this semantic meaning. Uh, and here we have uh, characterization, which is ways of interrogating a digital object to recover its uh, important um, semantic and syntactic properties. Uh, the catalog is intended to be a service, essentially that's, that's a metadata store where we're capturing all the information um, about a particular piece of, of, of content. Uh, we can then work our way up the stack. We have this application layer uh, where we are providing um, uh, user-facing services um, such as ingest, the ingest of new material uh, into this environment, the indexing of that material, providing um, search services for that material as well as transformation services. How can we, uh, we, have, we have something in form X but we, we need to have it in, in form Y to deliver it. Um, how can we transform these things? Uh, and then finally up the top, uh, an interoperable layer um, that is where we feel we're able to uh, actually add value. Um, one of the interesting things about digital content with respect to traditional you know, paper-based material is that it's very easy to um, have a value added to, to that content over time. Um, we certainly see this in terms of um, you know, the burgeoning phenomena of, of social networking, um, tagging and, and people being able to uh, add, add commentary to things. Um, something that was relatively difficult to do in, in, in a paper-based world. You had to basically publish a whole new thing. Uh, whereas here, um, consumers, in essence, turn into publishers. Um, So, uh, as I mentioned, we, we have a very deliberate design process for um, turning, turning those values and turning these services uh, into, into, into systems. Uh, and we do this by asking a number of key questions. First of all, what are, for any given service, what are the uh, important conceptual entities that are underlying the service? What are the state properties of those entities? Uh, and what are, those what are their behaviors? So I'll take as an example the design of our new storage service, um, again, which is one of these foundational services. Until you have a place to, to put those bits, um, you really can't do anything else. Um, so the storage service can be um, thought of uh, conceptually as, as existing, you know, these, these entities existing at, at, at five different levels. There is the, the service uh, itself as a whole, um, which is uh, an aggregation of what we're calling a storage node. Uh, where a storage node is a particular configuration of object storage. Uh, generally, it's uh, a configuration that's based on a particular technology choice or perhaps a particular uh, policy regime. Um, beneath that, there are individual digital objects where an object is just an aggregation of files. Uh, those files can fall into um, versions. Um, 
specific configurations of files that represent object state at a point in time. And then finally, down at the bottom, we have um, the files themselves. We can then define sort of a standard set of methods that um, uh, operate and manipulate um, these various uh, entity states. Uh, so we can, we can retrieve the state uh, at any of those five different levels. So we can get the state of the service, get the state of a node, get the state of an object, version, file, and so forth. Um, we also can add new versions, uh, which is you know, the, the, the sort of the single way to, to inject uh, data into the system. Once we have these methods in mind, these are all defined in terms of um, abstract service interfaces. So here we're looking at the get file state um, service, which takes a number of parameters, the identifier for a node, object, and version. Uh, I'm sorry, get file state. Uh, uh, obviously, you need to present identifiers for the object, for the node, the object, the version, the file, uh, and a particular form in which you want to um, re receive the data. Um, it is then only, only now that we have this um, abstract service interface that we finally um, figure out ways in which to map this to uh, particular, um, procedure, uh, particular interfaces. Uh, so we're showing here at the top what, how we could map this to uh, a web interface using sort of a, H, a rest, RESTful HTTP. Um, we could also map this to a, uh, uh, a command line application or um, at a procedural um, level, um, we could have various types of um, language bindings for doing this. So um, talk a little bit about some technological choices. Um, and um, we're, we're all, of course, very familiar with this, with this idea of, of this relentless technological change and, and things, technology changes out from underneath us all the time. But at the same time, um, there is an opportunity, I think, to take advantage of a certain amount of technological invariance. Uh, if we look back, um, say, over the past 20 years, there are, in fact, um, some bits of technology um, that were new then, back in uh, 89, uh, that, in fact, are still uh, useful um, and reliable today, things such as uh, FTP, uh, the POSIX, um, uh, file system and command um, interfaces, um, SQL and relational databases. Um, we can posit, in fact, that these things will remain vi uh, viable uh, 20 years hence. Uh, and we can also think about what are the things, um, what are the pieces of technology that we have at our disposal today that will also um, still be around in, in, in 20 years' time. Uh, and we might, uh, we sort of put this out as, 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 as contenders for that, things such as the HTTP protocol, URIs, uh, XML as a serialization standard, and so forth. Um, the important thing to note here is that um, the things that tend to last the longest are, are protocols and interfaces, again, rather than uh, individual systems or specific technology choices. So um, all of our work is, is always done trying to, trying to be based upon the, the, the most um, abstract conceptualization of technology rather than the most specific. So if we then sort of apply this um, to the design of our storage system, uh, one of the things that we are trying to do is uh, a somewhat radical simplification of, of the underlying technology. Uh, and there are lots of all, there are all kinds of very fancy um, storage um, 
appliances that you can go out and buy that that do all sorts of things a lot of them have various types of embedded databases into them so that the the act of retrieving a file means you have you're actually doing you know calls against databases which which know where blocks are and things of that sort and that strikes us as being a bit too complicated and introducing potential single points of failure what we're interested in doing is is saying what's what's a simpler data abstraction and we are using the idea of the file system as the as the governing storage abstraction for which we are going to provide archival storage we can then ask what is the what sort of the thinnest additional layer smear of added functionality that we need to put on top of a file system in order to make it an effective object store and we'll be talking about a series of tools and specifications that we're developing to do this first of all is this is a system we're calling namaste which stands for name name is text tag the idea here is that we're going to be using the file system files are organized into directories how can we tell what a particular directory is if we're walking a file system hierarchy and we come across a directory it would be it would be nice if we had some independent way of indicating what is the function of the data in that directory when we're dealing with things that such as files this this is often done through the process of matching internal signatures so the 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 well-known Unix shell command file for example that's what that does what it does is it has a long list of magic numbers or other types of indicative bit streams that it searches for within files and it can tell you this is a this is this is an executable file this is a JPEG image this is a PDF file and so forth what we're trying to do with namaste is is do the same thing for directories can we put a, um, a file in a directory based on a, on a, on a standard um, file syntax that would give us some indication of, of what the, the function of that data in that directory is. Um, so this is work that is extending something called the Dublin Core kernel metadata um, which defines four metadata elements, who, what, when, where, um, which also have um, uh, shorter symbolic names H1 through H4. Um, we're adding a, a fifth uh, element, what we're calling tag, um, with uh, the symbolic name H0. Uh, we can then turn this into one of these namaste tags by, by creating a file of, of this form. Zero equals um, some functional name and a version identifier. Um, so that the, the actual, the name of that file is, is the tag that will tell us something about the, um, the data that's being stored within that directory. So you can see how this would, would appear here. Um, CAN, or Content Access Node, is the, the system that um, uh, is analogous to that storage node entity uh, in, our, in our storage service. So a CAN is a file system convention for an object store. Uh, and basically, it has a root uh, directory, here sh shown here as, as this directory CAN. Um, we're seeing the namaste tag, 0 equals can underscore 0 0.2, which is telling us that this directory is a, is a, is a can root directory, uh, and it complies with specification, you know, version, version point 0.2 of the can specification. Um, beneath that, there is a store directory, uh, and then that store is the, is the structural root for a file system hierarchy in which we're going to store all of our digital objects. Um, so uh, that, that 
hierarchy, it forms a tree-like hierarchy, um, and we, we need to um, define the organizational structure both of the branches of that tree and the leaves of a tree. For the branches of a tree, we are using a specification called pear tree. Uh, a pear tree is the idea that you can take, the, um, take an identifier, an arbitrary identifier um, that's associated with your digital object, uh, you do a bigram decomposition, which is you take uh, pairs of um, uh, subsequent letters uh, and then you, you, you turn each one of those bigram pairs into a subdirectory. So as we're showing here, if, if our identifier was in fact the string identifier, uh, we would have this, this directory path id slash en slash ti slash so forth. Um, and at the, at the end of that, um, we get to a leaf node uh, and that's where the object with identifier identifier would live. Um, using this type of bigram decomposition, this gives us a very nice balance of uh, directory fanout and uh, directory depth. Um, so it, it remains um, um, reasonably easy to uh, traverse the file system tree. When we get down to the leaf node, um, what, well how, how do we organize the, the data associated with a particular digital object? Um, we have another specification called dflat. Um, or digital flats, where the it's where the, the object lives, uh, and again we're seeing the namaste tag telling us that this is a D flat directory. Um, objects, uh, as mentioned before, are, are collections of files. The files themselves are organized into various versions that represent state um, at, at points of time, uh, and so we're, we're seeing here two version directories: um, version one and version two. Um, the way in which we're handling the versioning. Um, we have another uh, way to deal with that. The, the, the naive way of handling versions is that, that each version would have a complete set of files that represent the object state at a point in time. Um, this, uh, however, is a little bit profligate of storage um, because, in fact, most changes introduced by versioning are relatively small. So we want to have some sort of um, uh, more highly compressed way of dealing with versions, uh, and we're using a specification called reverse delta directories uh, which is, is, is a way of only um, having to manage the files that have changed between, between versions. Um, and uh, so um, what are the changes that can happen between versions? Well, you can, you can delete a file or you can add a new file or uh, re replace an existing file with a new version. But of course, replace is, is equivalent to a delete and an add. Um, so the files to be added uh, live in an add subdirectory. The files to be deleted are listed in this delete uh, text file. Uh, see, I'm running close to my time here. Um, so as I mentioned, we're 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 exploiting um, the file system as our is our uh, managerial um, uh, uh, paradigm for all of this, and you might be asking, you know, are, are file systems up to this? You know, what happens when you have many, many uh, millions or tens of millions of files? Um, what's going to happen? Um, we've done a little bit of experiments with some um, um, fairly modern file systems. The one we've been working with primarily is ZFS, which is a, um, a Sun-created file system. It's available. It's a part of uh, OpenSolaris. Uh, and this is a, a relatively modern, new modern file system. It, it exhibits very good uh, performance characteristics. Uh, what we've done is we took a, uh, uh, an empty storage array that had about uh, 28 
terabytes of capacity on it, and we filled it up uh, twice. Once we filled, we took to about uh, you know, two, bit over two million files, relatively larger files. Uh, in the other use case, we took about 127 million files, and we, we completely filled up the file system, uh, and we computed a bunch of metrics. Uh, and what we what we found here is that the time to um, write or the time to create a new subdirectory or the time to write a new file uh, is essentially constant, regardless of the number or the total size of the data that we're dealing with. Uh, there's that one little weird outlier that's happening on both those charts that we can't quite explain what's happening there, but, but otherwise we see this very um, uh, constant time behavior. Uh, obviously, the time to traverse the entire file system does increase with the, uh, with the number and size, um, but as we're showing on that uh, right-hand chart, uh, that increase is, uh, is strictly linear with the growth in size and number. So it still remains tractable. So where, where are we with all of this? Um, this is still very much uh, work in progress that we are uh, undergoing. Um, but we, we are working, we're starting out with the two foundational services, both identity and storage. Uh, and we, we hope to have, in fact, working um, implementations of these um, probably in about another month's time. Um, we're, we're undergoing development now and, and some of the final testing work. Um, once those two foundational services are in place, then we'll move on um, to um, sort of the next layer of criticality, which is uh, the ingest, catalog, and characterization services. Uh, and then beyond that, we'll, we'll start building out um, incrementally over time. Um, we also, we, we do have a number, as I said, we will be deploying these things uh, in, in useful combinations ourselves, um, but we've also identified a number of campus partners who are interested in, in deploying these services out locally and uh, actually managing, managing their own data for themselves. So that will conclude my here, so I will pass the microphone over to Perry, who will talk a little bit about web archiving and some other projects we have. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, I'm Perry Willett. I'm a project manager at uh, the California Digital Library, and I'm going to talk about some of the uh, projects that we're working on. They're implementing some of these technologies and, and others. Um, and the first is, uh, uh, has to do with capturing content and archiving content on the web. Um, the web, uh, believe it or not, does have valuable content on it. Uh, it's not just pictures of cats playing the piano. Um, uh, faculty have, have publications and, and research published on the web. Uh, there's web content that libraries and archives want to preserve. Um, how, can, how can we do that? Um, so we've developed a system called the Web Archiving Service that um, provides tools for librarians, archivists, and curators um, to define collections of, of web content, um, crawl those websites, and uh, work uh, and preserve uh, the content um, in our uh, preservation repository. Um, the three examples there at the top are um, some of the early uh, web uh, co uh, uh, collections that have been uh, 
created by um, UC uh, curators and, and others. Uh, one has to do with the wildfires uh, in Southern California a couple of years ago. Uh, another has to do with uh, Islamic and Middle Eastern websites. And uh, the third is a collection of government documents from Orange County. So there's, there's a span of, of, uh, of content uh, of interest, both locally, nationally, even internationally, um, that's being collected. Um, the system that we've developed is, is fairly easy to use. Uh, there's just a series of, of four steps. Uh, a curator would first create a site um, um, and define the websites that they want to crawl. Um, then uh, put it in motion. Um, in, in the process of defining it, they also define the frequency by which they want to crawl these sites so that they can uh, capture these over time. Um, uh, press a button and it, it starts. Um, uh, then they can, they can view those captures. And uh, finally, and this is the, the part that we're uh, most excited about now is we're going to start providing public access to these collections. Um, starting next month, we'll have a way for people uh, outside of the curators and, and others who uh, are part of this project to view the contents of the collections that are being created. Um, of course, there are a lot of rights issues uh, surrounding this area. There's uh, uh, recommendations of a study group um, headed by the Library of Congress called the Section 108 Study Group that has published a set of recommendations. These aren't law yet. These aren't part of the copyright law. Um, but we are um, confident that by following these recommendations, we're, we're, we're staying within the spirit of it. Um, and so uh, we feel uh, in, with, within these recommendations, it, it states very clearly that libraries have the right to capture content on the free web and uh, store it, preserve it in an archive, and make it available uh, after an embargo period. Uh, we've decided on a six-month embargo period. Um, and we also have opportunities for uh, the owners, content providers, to opt out of the system if they so provide. Um, if they contact us and say, please take down uh, our content, we'll do so. We'll also tell them that they should update their robots.com txt file so that we don't crawl it in the future. Um, the advantages uh, to this are it allows libraries to create curated collections of web content um, and provide persistent access and URLs um, to those in their, in their online catalogs so that they can point to these, to this content, these documents reliably into the future not have to worry about whether the, either the architecture of the original website is going to change and the URL changes or that it goes away altogether. Um, also, in addition, uh, we're providing full-text search, which I think distinguishes our service from some of the other um, web archiving services that are available, such as Archive-It, um, which doesn't have that feature. So we think that's an important uh, part of this service. So here's a web shot, a, a screenshot of uh, one of the uh, collections that has been created of uh, LA uh, government uh, uh, documents. Um, we, we give it a nice uh, banner and uh, uh, allow, have sort of a front splash page that um, says a little more about the collection and, and has a search box. 
um, when somebody conducts a search, they uh, they get a um, the results. We're still figuring out. Um, uh, I'll say a little more about the technology behind it, but we're still sort of figuring out the ranking system used uh, by our search engine and uh, trying to fine tune that. Uh, we come up with some surprises every so often. Um, uh, then, once somebody looks at a document, it's it's framed so that it. We try to make clear that this is not the the live version, but instead is uh, within our archive, and we point to um, what we think is the the uh, URL to the live version, or at least to the to the site where we retrieved it from. And up, up here, give, give an archival URL that a library or an archive could use um, if they wanted to catalog this uh, document. So we've, uh, we've uh, received funding from the Library of Congress for this project and have worked with uh, partners on it, including the University of North Texas, uh, uh, Stanford, and um, New York University. Um, and we've also been working with curators on most of the UC campuses to uh, start building collections. So once we uh, release the public version, the public access to these, you'll start seeing uh, these collections online and you'll see what your colleagues on, on those campuses have been doing. Um, we're using, for the most part, uh, open source software behind the scenes. So we're using the Heretix, Heretix crawler and the Wayback Display and, and Match Indexing all developed at, at Internet Archive. And we've been working with Internet Archive, uh, talking about our implementation of it and pointing out um, things that we discover when we're using it. Um, and in addition, we're engaged in uh, the standards and, and uh, uh, various uh, protocol development that goes on surrounding this, so working on standards for uh, archiving web content uh, called the WARC standard is, is something we've been working on with the National Library of France and, and others. Um, just talking a, a little bit more about some of the other collaborations we're working on. Um, in addition to uh, the web archiving service, we, as Stephen said, we, we do uh, offer a digital repository service to the UC libraries and have content from most of the libraries in there. And uh, I've already forgotten how much is there. Is there eight and a half terabytes of, of data we have. In addition to the library content, we're working with uh, some projects outside of libraries, including uh, this Data One, which is a, an NSF-funded data net project uh, to preserve scientific data uh, that's distributed um, worldwide and uh, provide infrastructure for researchers who are looking for data on, on primarily on global change um, without knowing where it might have been produced to be able to find it. Um, the University of New Mexico is the PI on that grant, but we're, we're one of the partners and uh, uh, researchers at UC Santa Barbara are also uh, partners on that grant. In addition, we're working with Berkeley uh, on uh, archiving the uh, contents in the Media Vault program, the, the uh, collection of museum and, and archive uh, digital objects that uh, is available through the Media Vault program. 
And uh, Riverside has been working for several years on digitizing newspapers, Calif historical California newspapers, and uh, which creates some very large uh, digital objects, um, as you might expect. Um, so we are uh, working with them on uh, preserving uh, those digital objects. And if you or any or in researchers on your campus are uh, have uh, interest in working with us, please contact us because we're always looking for, for new partners. Um, and finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a notion that's being um, developed in uh, digital preservation, uh, this idea of a trusted digital repository. As uh, preservation and repository services proliferate, uh, people will have a lot of questions about the trustworthiness. There are any number now of um, repository preservation services uh, in the library field um, that are available to libraries, uh, both non not from nonprofit organizations as well as, as for-profit organizations. And libraries will have a lot of questions about how uh, trustworthy they are, whether they can uh, be trusted with their data, uh, and whether they can preserve those data into the future. Um, one methodology that's been developed in the past few years is this concept of a trusted digital repository. And one of the main tools for evaluating that trustworthiness is this uh, trusted repositories audit and certification checklist um, that's been developed by the Research Libraries Group, RLG, OCLC, um, which is a, a national library consortium, and uh, National Archives and the Center for Research Libraries. Um, and this, this checklist does, uh, has three functions. Uh, one, uh, it allows an organization to undergo sort of a self-audit. As, as they work through the items in the checklist, it, it gives them an opportunity to test their own uh, planning and implementation of a repository against the best practices of the community so they can identify any gaps in their planning or implementation. Uh, second, it provides a methodology for other organizations to evaluate a repository service um, and, and uh, 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 conduct uh, an external audit, in fact, of, of a repository. And third, it provides a common framework to compare repository services. So um, given this sort of growing plethora of of repository services, that if if there are uh, if if each of these or any of these have undergone uh, this this track process, they, uh, an organization would be able to to compare responses to uh, uh, compare the documentation and and make a real a real comparison, make an informed decision about digital preservation. The basic approach is. Um, uh, the track checklist has a number of categories that uh, ask questions of, of an organization to respond to, and the organization then documents its planning policies and, and implementation uh, in uh, building uh, the digital repository. As I said, it allows an organization to self-audit and identify gaps in its uh, uh, planning and allows other organizations to, to see uh, how, the organ how this repository has responded to uh, the various parts of this. 
There are three sections to uh, this checklist. One is organization, which looks at mission statement of the organization, succession plans, if um, the repository changes direction or loses funding or goes out of business, um, the governance model of, of the organization, staffing, financial sustainability, uh, and other, other uh, important features of uh, the organization. Second, it looks at digital object management. Uh, how is content acquired by the repository? How is it ingested? Um, how is it stored? What kinds of other uh, data, metadata, are uh, acquired along with the digital objects? And uh, is there a disaster plan? Um, and how is access provided? And finally, it looks at the technologies used by the repository, the infrastructure, security, um, and makes uh, judgments about the appropriateness and the adequacy of, of, those, uh, of those technologies. You'll notice, as, as Stephen uh, mentioned, just to underline something he said, that technologies is only one aspect of judging the trustworthiness of, of a uh, repository. And in, in some ways, at least in, in this process, I think the organizational, uh, the first category is really given more weight than the technology is. So looking at the uh, viability of an organization is as important or perhaps even more important than te the technology used uh, by, uh, by the repository. Um, the Topps company that makes baseball cards will be issuing trading cards of the world's biggest hoaxes, hoodwinks, and bamboozles this summer, uh, including cards for Enron, from left to right Enron, Bertie Madoff, <coughs> and Charles Ponzi, and this is just a reminder that audits aren't perfect and um, can't be entirely trusted. Um, I think the main concern in our community isn't about fraud or deception, however. Um, it's just about the ability of one organization to understand uh, the workings of another. I think there's a lot of local um, culture, local decision-making that happens that um, is difficult to uh, communicate to other um, organizations and they are sort of central to understanding uh, how they have implemented uh, their repository. And so um, there are a lot of assumptions that an organization has in uh, creating a repository and creating a, a repository service. Um, that can be difficult to communicate. Um, that this process, the track process, should cause an organization to question its own assumptions, but, but can it go far enough? Um, the um, Center for Research Libraries is testing that currently, this process, where uh, um, they, they have chosen two repositories. Um, one is called Portico, which is a, a not-for-profit organization that's archiving um, e-journals. And the other is called the Hathi Trust, which is uh, a collaboration of the University of Michigan and Indiana University uh, to archive the uh, content that's being digitized by Google and other uh, mass digitization efforts. Both of those organizations have gone through and documented using the track checklist, documented themselves, and the Center for Research Libraries is now conducting, trying to conduct an external audit using the, the documentation. And it's, it's sort of a beta test of this process to see if it's really possible for one organization 
to conduct an external audit of, of another. Um, I think the process um, has to be entered into a spirit of, of uh, trust and yet skepticism, um, a willingness to uh, trust partners but at the same time ask hard questions um, and question assumptions. Um, so for the process to work, um, I think both parties, both the, the organization that's running the repository as well as the external auditor has to enter into it with the desire, the motivation has to be both sides wish to desire to um, improve service, um, which should result in, in greater transparency and we think better services. So I will turn it over to Stephen to uh, summarize. There's a, uh, there's a very well-known aphorism that um, uh, in the sciences that, that a theory should be as simple as possible but, but no simpler, um, which is often attributed to Albert Einstein, one of those facts you'll read on the, on the web, um, that in this case is not quite true. He said something like it, but I guess because he was German, he, he went on with, it went on and on and on and on. But um, nevertheless, it, it, this, this notion is really um, underlying uh, the principle of Occam's razor. Uh, and I think um, from our own personal experiences, we, we, we know that, in fact, Occam's razor often cuts, cuts very true. Um, so what, what we are basically doing in, in um, this reconceptualization of our, of our services is trying to see uh, just how simple um, uh, a preservation environment we can build and yet still have it be effective. Uh, and I think this is a, it's, it's an experiment, but I think um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, interesting and good approach. Uh, so what we're basically trying to do is in, in with that, those bundle of our, our 12, 12 um, microservices uh, can be sort of summarized with these, these, these four sort of pithy sayings. Um, we're trying to provide uh, safety through redundancy, uh, meaning through description, utility through service, and value through use. Uh, and in terms of the actual uh, development processes, uh, another um, set of, of sort of uh, four aphorisms that we're trying to keep in mind is always uh, coding to interfaces. Um, we're interested in orthogonality, um, but at the same time, interoperability. Um, we're interested in composition, not addition, um, by which we mean we, we want to compose atomic service, uh, services into, into complex processing chains rather than uh, adding um, adding function to any any one of those individual services. Uh, and then finally, we're very much interested in trying to bring our services to the content um, rather than requiring that the content always has to come to the services. So I think that brings us to an end. Um, we weren't sure we, were, we had enough to fill up an hour, but I see we did it uh, with no trouble at all. <laughs> Um, but we'd be uh, happy to entertain any questions you might have about any of this. Yes, please. When you say bringing
Yes. Is that, is that protection that the goal is? That's, that is certainly one of the goals. Um, that, 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 there's, there's no reason why that, we should not enable that kind of behavior. If, if, if you are willing to take on, you know, that, that obligation for yourself, um, then that's fine. It may happen at the personal level. Um, perhaps it's more likely at, at some sort of organizational level, you know, within a, within a department, within, within a research unit. Um, they may feel that they have the, you know, the skills and capabilities, um, in order to, to manage things for themselves. Yes, yes. Hopefully, yeah, you know, who, who can you trust more than yourself? Uh, you know, if you don't trust us or, or somebody else, um, there's no reason why you can't use these, these services as building blocks to put together an appropriate uh, infrastructure um, that, that you deal with directly. Yes, please. Uh, generally, we well okay two 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 answers. Um, we will accept whatever people are prepared to to provide to us. So there's no hard and fast rule of what we what we you know there's nothing that we will say no we won't take that in. Uh, obviously, um, we can make r recommendations on what we feel would be the best formats you know for particular genres of content. Um, you know. Uh, if, if, if you have um, digital imagery, then you probably want to be looking at uh, JPEG 2000 with, you know, either no compression or lossless compression. Uh, if you have some, you know, as opposed to say TIFF or, or, or JPEG or GIF, older, older formats. Uh, if you have electronic documents, um, they probably want to be in uh, PDFA rather than just plain PDF. And PDF is probably preferable to Microsoft Word and, and, and so forth, things of that sort. Um, so we certainly can make recommendations to you if you have latitude in at the point of creation. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes you just, you have what you have uh, and that becomes a more difficult problem. Um, there generally are two uh, accepted strategies for dealing with that over time. One is uh, migration and the other is emulation. Um, for a long time within the preservation community, we didn't understand emulation and it seemed to be really hard. So we focused a lot on migration that, you know, you would, we would monitor the, you know, the health <laughs> of, of a particular format. And when we thought it was nearing a point of obsolescence, uh, we would transform it into some newer format that would give us another 10 years of life. And then we would just keep doing that into the future. Um, now, of course, with the rise of virtual machines, emulation starts to look a lot more attractive. You know, you don't actually have to change the, 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 the content at all. Um, you just maintain software that knows how to render it properly. And as long as you, you can, as long as that software can run on a virtual machine into the future, then that gives you sort of the same level of assurance. We have to so. Ah, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, Perry and I will be here the rest of the day, so please. Track them, track them down outside, ask more questions. Please fill out your evaluation forms.